everybody. Welcome to the Food Intelligence Podcast. My name is Ron, and I'm joined, as always, by Miriam. And today we're going to go over part two of our 2022 predictions for the U.S. And there's also going to be an exciting episode all about the U.K. pretty soon. But without further ado, let's get back to the trends. Miriam, welcome back to the pod. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. So last time we talked about uh, some of our predictions for 2022. Um, We were looking at trends that were growing in a substantial way throughout last year, and we were trying to um, make estimates of how will they continue to behave uh, next year. And we were also looking at things that have sort of uh, slingshotted past COVID, right? Maybe things that have risen uh, through kind of the whole COVID period uh, that, uh, you know, we're always trying to dance around like, are we after it? Are we still in it? Now it very much feels like we're still in it. But yeah. in the world of food and beverage, um, in when we're talking about food trends, there's definitely been a list of trends that were either um, pretty obscure before COVID and then were kind of catapulted into the mainstream um, with COVID. Um, and there are a lot of changes happening in the market that I think were not caused by COVID, but were definitely accelerated by it. Uh, the simplest one and maybe the most obvious one is how digital we are today as consumers um, and why measuring the market becomes very difficult uh, in today's world, in today's extremely digital world. So today we're going to continue going through these trends. Um, and um, all right, so that's enough of me talking about that. Uh, <laughs> why don't you kind of walk us through what we'll be talking about? Sure thing. So today we're going to be covering the final four of our top eight trends for the U.S. in 2022, like you said. So we're going to start off with some flavored trends covering floral and zesty flavor profiles. We're going to talk about oyster mushrooms and especially their use uh, as scallop replacements and seafood replacements. We're going to talk about um, flavor profiles that are about fusion, so things that that pair with sweet, and we'll get into that in just a moment. And we're going to talk about trends in mochi and baked goods, so some really exciting ones we have today. Awesome. Um, Are you sorting these by consumer needs or just where, like, what were the criteria for these to make your list? Yeah. Um, so just like we talked about last week, but for those of you who uh, maybe need a refresher or this is the first one that you're listening to, I definitely recommend listening to last week as well just to get the full picture. Um, but the criteria to uh, make the list, the very exclusive taste-wise trend prediction list for 2022, um, were threefold. Um, so the first is you needed the trends needed to um, reach a certain threshold. And I'm not going to get too deep into that, what that is. Um, if you're interested, shoot us a note and we can kind of talk you through the data science side of things. But essentially, um, each of these trends had to be statistically significant. So we're not just looking at, you know, minuscule trends that have experienced high growth because they've gotten just a tiny bit bigger. We're looking at emerging trends, right? Exciting trends that are a little bit smaller scale than the mainstream trends we've been seeing over the course of the last two years. Um, but these all have to have achieved a certain threshold of engagement. Uh, across social media, across recipes, and uh, restaurant menus. Um, the second is that they have to be validated, at least to some extent, across all three of those data sources that I just mentioned. So we really want to make sure that uh, these trends are showing up in interesting ways across uh, home cooking, restaurants, and consumer behavior, um, just so that we're really presenting kind of a holistic picture. Um, and the third 
is that it has to demonstrate um, positive growth over the past uh, two years. So in the United States, um, we are tracking this data over the course of two years because we really want to be able to capture the majority of this COVID era that Ron was describing before. So we want to make sure that there is um, positive growth over the course of those two years. Obviously, and this is true of any trend, we're going to see peaks and valleys that can be anything from seasonal to just changing consumer tastes um, you know, in, the, in a given moment. But we want to see on the whole that there is general upward trend line uh, for each of these trends to make sure that they will be trending into 2022. So on uh, positive growth, meaning it's uh, it's better than when it started, not necessarily that it didn't have any like valleys um, as it was Exactly. Growing. Yeah, exactly. And if there are any trends that experienced significant dips at any point in time, we've uh, looked into that and evaluated that and figured out, you know, why was that? What was prompting that? Um, and included that as part of our analysis. And if we feel like that, you know, derailed the trend, then we didn't include it. But if we found that it added uh, kind of texture and richness to the trend itself, then we've discussed it. And you can check all of this out of the report. Um, we'll put it in the show notes, but definitely take a look um, and you get the all eight trends um, in report form and you can download that for yourself. So all of these reports are available on the TasteWise website, tastewise.io. And uh, as always, I just want to remind everybody that uh, all of the analysis that we're doing and that we're presenting on the, on this podcast is done with the TasteWise Food Intelligence pro- uh, platform. Um, we have a free version of the product that uh, you can use right now. So if you go to tastewise.io, we have uh, TasteWise Starter, which is a completely free uh, version of uh, the platform. Uh, that you can use to follow along with a lot of these trends. So if any of the trends that we'll be talking about today are of interest to you, you can just pop them into the uh, platform uh, paired with uh, a consumer need that you're interested in or anything else that you want to narrow down your search, and you'll automatically get um, a free report that's downloadable that uh, you can use and that uh, aggregates information from social media, from recipes, uh, from delivery, from from billions of data sources, um, all for free. So... Uh, we know that it's useful for a lot of our audience's um, day-to-day work. And if there's anything extra that you need in order you know, to make your next pitch, uh, pitch presentation or anything else that you might be working on, then feel free to just shoot us a note at live at tastewise.io and uh, we'll make sure you get what you need. Um, all right, enough with uh, my uh, pitch. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's get into the first trend. Awesome. All right. So we're going to start off with one of our flavor trends that we uh, talked about at the top of the episode. So we're going to look at floral and zesty. Um, So floral and zesty flavor profiles have been growing over the course of uh, the last two years um, and specifically also in the last year, which is really interesting. So floral tastes are up 89% over the past two years while Zesty is up 63% over the last two years. Um, And what's interesting about both of these is that they are associated with um, botanicals, natural ingredients, and refreshments, right? So that might make sense. You're thinking of um, natural ingredients usually when we're thinking about floral or zest. Zest is often associated with citrus, so it makes sense that we would see things like, you know, botanicals or refreshment even oftentimes in a beverage form. Um, and we're also seeing that floral uh, is particularly associated, again, not surprisingly, with aesthetic nature, with its aesthetic nature, right? And a lot of the trending um, floral ingredients that we're looking at, and I'll talk about in a moment, are, are quite beautiful. And we're seeing that consumers in restaurants alike are really uh, tapping into that. Um, so let's look at a few of the specific examples. So within the context of floral rising 89% over the past two years, um, we're seeing osmanthus, chrysanthemum, and cherry blossom are the fastest rising edible flowers. Um, so specifically within floral, you can kind of look at floral in two different ways, right? There's uh, the, fl- the flowers that are in and of themselves edible. 
um, oftentimes used as garnishes or um, as the really aesthetic element of something. We often see this in baked goods, um, oftentimes on salads, things like that. Um, and there's the flavor taste profile, right? So maybe you don't have the physical you know, blossom on the plate, but you're using the essence or uh, something like that in, in the dish. Um, but we're seeing that specifically um, edible flowers are trending. So just to give you the numbers, osmanthus is growing 38% just over the last year alone. So not over the past two years, just over the last year to give you a sense of how quickly it's growing. Um, chrysanthemum is up 36% in the last year and cherry blossoms are up 21%. Um, so those, again, are the fastest rising edible flowers. Um, and if you check out the report, you can see lots of kind of beautiful examples of the ways that those are showing up on the plate. So the trend, the trend that you're seeing here is that more uh, edible flowers and uh, flower, uh, like floral garnishes are being used in, in more dishes? Um, or like, is, is that like the main takeaway from, uh, from this trend? Yeah, um, I think so. The The main takeaway is uh, kind of twofold. One, um, flowers are showing up more heavily. Um, this is joining things like botanicals, which we've seen being used in cocktails over the past uh, year, right? When we kind of had an, an episode, I think back in, wow, even early 2021 or, or 2020, um, mm -hmm. where we talked about how everybody's a mixologist, right? And everybody's learning these mixology skills. And, and one of the ways that we saw people testing those skills with botanics, right? So, or botanicals. So looking at the role of things like, you know, rosemary or lavender or things like that, right? So that's one element. And that was kind of what I was talking about, about uh, the flavors. But what we're seeing is particularly new and interesting is the use of edible flowers. Um, now, we did do a webinar a few weeks ago where we talked about this and someone said, uh, wow, edible flowers to me sounds really uh, like 70s, right? Like really old fashioned and kind of out of touch. Like, you know, can we really trust that this trend is, is significant? Um, and I think that in our societies at large, and especially in the US, we're seeing a resurgence of things that were once considered, um, you know, old timey or old fashioned or not particularly sexy or interesting, um, having sort of a resurgence and a reinvention uh, in these COVID years. Um, so I think that that's kind of a macro trend, not just in food and beverage, right? We're seeing that across the board. Um, and that plays into things like nostalgia, which we, we also covered a, um, a few months ago, but happy to, to look into that again. Um, kind of these motivations that tie our emotional sense of the past um, with these kind of new innovative, there's, there we go again, innovative, I only say it on the podcast, <laughs> innovative <laughs> <laughs> applications. So um you know, whereas we might have used edible flowers in a certain way in the 70s, um, we're seeing lots of, you know, home chefs and restaurant chefs really bringing this ingredient into, uh, you know, 2022 with really fascinating and creative ways. Would you see the kind of application of this be more kind of in marketing um, for the presentation of your dishes, like use more floral arrangements or edible flowers? Or do you see this as more uh, consider these things as ingredients as you're uh, putting together like new flavor profiles? The answer is yes um, to both of those things. So I think that uh, whatever, you know, makes sense most for the particular thing that you're you're working on, the particular product or dish. Um, but definitely consider both flavor taste profiles and the aesthetics. Um, and I mentioned before that kind of this trend is twofold. So the, the one is kind of surface level that floral um, is rising. Um, but the deeper level here is that consumers are looking for um, sophisticated, stimulating experiences with their food. Um, and a way to do that is by bringing color and uh, these natural ingredients within edible flowers to the plate. Um, so I think that 
on its surface, flowers, definitely an important takeaway, but a little bit deeper that consumers are looking for this kind of edgy, interesting, um, really sensory experience from their food and beverage. And flowers is just one of the ways to do that. Okay. Interesting. Great. Um, the other part of that is zesty. Um, so that was the second half of this trend. So zesty flavor profiles are up 63% over the past two years. Um, and as is implied by the word zesty, um, all of those pretty much are citrus fruits. So the top rising citrus fruits, which consumers particularly um, love for their zesty nature, are Seville oranges, which are up 373% in the last year alone. So that's a really significant growth. Um, Calamansi, which is up 189%. Meyer lemon, which is up 123%. And one of my personal favorites, I grew up um, in California with a Meyer lemon tree. And I like just speaking of nostalgia, right? Have such great memories of that flavor. Um, and yuzu, which is up 26% year over year. So um, yuzu, even though it has the smallest growth rate of those four that I just mentioned, is actually one of the ones that we're most excited to watch um, because it's growing significantly in both home and restaurant contexts. And we expect it to really kind of make a splash uh, no pun intended, because um, it has a lot of applications within cocktails. Um, we're also seeing it in in food applications. So it's one of those that I think is going to be going places in 2022 and definitely worth keeping an eye on. I've been seeing yuzu everywhere. I mean, in within like the context of taste-wise, a lot of the uh, customers that we work with, um, I a lot of the times I will um, either join some of these customer calls to kind of learn more about how our customers are using uh, market research and how they're approaching these things. And these are some of the biggest companies in the world. Um, and Yuzu has just been coming up all the time as something new and exciting that people are focusing on in all in a variety of different ways. Um, I tried to include it in a pun for a Christmas email that I don't know if we ended up sending. I think we didn't. Let's hear it. <laughs> it's. Uh, are you ready for this? It, this. It's not great. It's not my. Okay. Fine, it's not my finest moment. Okay, I'm excited. Let's hear it. It's uh, all I want for Christmas is you, Zoo. Zoo. So interesting that you say we're not sure if we sent that out because the person who has the ultimate deciding power on what puns go into emails is me. So <laughs> I may have uh, put things about on that one, but also may have kept it. We'll have to look. Um, but that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, considering it. the fact that it is way past Christmas, <laughs> I think yeah. I think we know. That ship what... has probably probably <laughs> sailed. Yeah. Um. Speaking of yuzu, though, I do want to give one quick point about that. So um, yuzu is a really versatile ingredient. Um, as it is a citrus, we can, we're finding applications um, for it that really replace other citrus fruits. Um, so, of course, there are lots of interesting gourmet and, and uh, kind of avant-garde ways to use yuzu. But we're seeing that, um, you know, recipes that once included another type of citrus, people are experimenting with yuzu because it's fresh, it's interesting, it's top of mind. People are seeing it everywhere. It kind of brings that sense of you know, intrigue and trying something new. Um, so that might be an easy switch or an easy uh, kind of way to bring Yuzu into your marketing, or sorry, into your product development. Um, and it's a little bit more accessible than let's say adding, uh, you know, edible flowers to your dish, um, which is also, yeah. you know, a really interesting thing that you could do. But if you're looking for a little bit of an easier pivot within this trend that we're talking about right now, Yuzu might be a really interesting thing to play with. Awesome. We ready for another one? Let's do it. Okay, so um, drum roll. That was a very high-pitched drum. 
Um, we're looking at oyster mushrooms. So oyster mushrooms will be the new scallops is how we're packaging this. And at full disclosure, this is my favorite trend, I believe, of the eight, um, or at least, you know, top two, I would say. Um, really CMOS? exciting. I would say sea moss and king oyster mushrooms are my top two. Uh, but who can pick really, you know, they're all, they're all tasty um, and sound really exciting. So um, let's take a look at king oyster mushrooms. So before we dive into the specific ingredient, I want to think a little bit about um, plant-based seafood. So if you've been listening for a while, you know that we had um, a protein alternatives month back in August where we thought a lot about meat alternatives. We covered a little bit of dairy alternatives, a little bit of seafood alternatives. Um, and seafood is one of those categories that uh, shows a lot of promise, but it's still pretty early in, in its kind of plant-based journey. So um, if we look at uh, plant-based seafood, we can see that there are actually a lot of health motivations that are at play. So when people are choosing um, to forego the traditional animal-based seafood, they're looking for plant-based products to, to replace that. And that could be for any number of reasons, right? It could be for vegan reasons, ethical reasons, sustainability reasons, right? There's, there's lots of reasons to do it. Um, and maybe we can go into depth in that uh, on another episode. Um, but one of the main motivators for switching to plant-based seafood is health. Um, so if we look at the top health motivations within plant-based seafood, we see that things like gluten-free, uh, just general kind of interest in healthy nutrition, protein, superfoods, weight loss, gut health, these are all the top health motivators for plant-based seafood. Um, and the great news about king oyster mushrooms, and we'll talk about in just a moment what that actually means uh, or what exactly is a king oyster mushroom. Um, king oyster mushrooms are actually also particularly prized for their health benefits as well. So um, they uh, can support things like heart health, immunity, brain health. So they really plug into the health needs that consumers are um, aware of and looking to fulfill with plant-based seafood. So already there's a really great alignment there as a, a seafood replicant. Um, so king oyster mushrooms generally are up 103% um, over the last two years. So that's, that's pretty significant. Um, and today, 13% of king oyster mushroom consumption is as a scallop replacement. So we're already seeing that this uh, kind of meaty, very textured, uh, tasty mushroom is being used uh, as a replacement for scallops 13% of the time. So um, just to make that clear, 13% of the time that Americans are eating king oyster mushrooms, they're doing it as a scallop replacement. And we're going to see that that's growing. Um, and that interest in king oyster mushrooms is growing 103% over the past uh, two years. So uh, we've talked about the health motivation. So let's think a little bit deeper about why king oyster mushrooms specifically, right? There are tons of ingredients out there that um, are good for functional health, right? They might address heart health or immunity or brain health, those three motivations we talked about before. Um, so king oyster mushrooms are uh, a great, first of all, textural sub or substitute for scallops, right? So they, they have this kind of meaty um, texture to them. They're really kind of versatile in terms of preparation. You can prepare them in similar ways that you prepare scallops. Um, but they also uh, meet the top consumer needs, as we said before, for uh, the alternative seafood category as a whole. So let's think about... Um, that vegan seafood category, right? So we just talked about plant-based seafood. Let's back up a little bit and think about why vegan seafood at all matters. Um, so 43% of plant-based seafood discussions focus on health qualities. So again, that's a proof case for what we mentioned before about that alignment between king oyster mushrooms and uh, plant-based seafood specifically. Um, we're seeing a 50% year-over-year increase in menu mentions. So 50% uh, more menu mentions this year than last, or 2021 than, than previously, um, in the inclusion of plant-based seafood on their menus, which is great. Um, we're seeing an 18% increase year over year in home cooking and a 5% increase in restaurant buzz. So when people are actually talking about 
the things that are on their plate in restaurants. Typically, when you look at, uh, like, if you compare this to a lot of the work that you've done researching um, other plant-based foods or like plant-based uh, meats or meat alternatives, do you find that the drivers to them from a consumer needs perspective are the same? Or do you find that there are different things driving us towards uh, plant-based seafood versus like plant-based uh, meats? Or is it still like generally health, planetary health, sustainability, like the same type of drivers? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think kind of at a macro level, um, or at least generally as we're investigating this right now, we're seeing a lot of the same motivations. Um, we're seeing perhaps on a granular level, things a little bit different, right? The sustainability concerns over seafood are, are different um, in some sense than the sustainability concerns, let's say, for uh, you know the meat industry or the dairy industry. So in that way, there's a little bit of difference, but definitely the three kind of the major ones are sustainability, um, health, but also taste, right? People are, are interested also in experimenting with plant-based and seeing if they can replicate tastes uh, in a way that kind of scratches that itch for the original uh, dish. So yeah, I would say it's pretty similar, but a, a few differences here and there. Yeah, there's a lot of work that uh, that we've been doing lately with uh, brands that have uh, that have been looking for plant-based alternatives to some of their flagship products. Um, this is more in the world of uh, trend research and market research and uh, new product development, more so uh, than in um, uh, like uh, packaging and, and claims work. Um, mm. And it's uh, it's really interesting. I think one of the main things that um, this sort of thing unlocks is new audiences. Um, because we, we've seen this in, um, in meat, right? Where there was a meat-based product, for example, um, and the audience for that meat-based product was generally a male audience of, let's say, a certain age group, right? And by introducing a plant-based alternative or like a varieties of uh, plant-based alternatives to that same product line, um, you have now unlocked different audiences for the same product. So that could be a really interesting avenue of how to use something like this where you know that the best replacement that you can go for uh, for scallops right now is king oyster mushroom, right? So there's a lot of different ways that we can take this. Right, and I think that's one of the exciting things about using data uh, for these kind of decisions is that it allows you to kind of play the strategic puzzle with the most amount of tools in your hand. I like the language that you used about unlocking, right? You're able to mm -hmm. unlock these kind of insights that will allow you to create um, really interesting uh, products. Um, okay, I have one more point about king oyster mushrooms, which I think is really, really interesting. So we've talked about how king oyster mushrooms are uh, the new scallops in that they are kind of this perfect storm of taste and texture and aligned health motivations, right? Um, but there's also another piece to this puzzle, which is really exciting, um, that king oyster mushrooms are also adaptogenic. Um, and this is one of the most exciting categories, at least for me, um, over the past couple of months is thinking about the role that adaptogenic mushrooms are going to play in a number of trends, right? So everything from, you know, protein replacement to, uh, you know, its context in supplements to its context in beverages, whatever, you name it, right? We're seeing these pop up all over the place. Um, so I'll just explain a little bit about what king oyster mushrooms actually are and what their adaptogenic identity is actually like. So um, king oyster mushrooms in general are actually the most, I didn't know this, the most popularly eaten type of mushroom in the world, um, which is really interesting. And there's good reason for that. They're super nutritious. And we've spoken a little bit about that just a moment ago. Um, and they're easy to find in the wild and to grow. Um, and they're specifically tasty. So just kind of two anecdotes for that. I was doing some research on foraged uh food and beverage recently. And we're seeing, again, king oyster mushrooms pop up everywhere else. 
Um, and the second, in terms of growing at home, I just ordered myself a King Oyster Mushroom Grill Kit for my kitchen counter. <laughs> so um, <laughs> really getting in there with the, the trend. Uh, trend is that research. what you but, got from North uh, Sport? It is, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, they, yeah. have, they have a bunch of different really interesting ones. Um, so that's kind of the why oyster mushrooms we're seeing are becoming much more prevalent, right? They're, they're popular, um, because they're tasty. They're also healthy and they're easy to grow. They're easy to access. Um, they're not as high in protein as something else like lion's mane might be. Um, and lion's mane is another one of those adaptogenic mushrooms we're tracking. It's grown 26% over the past year and is often used as a crab meat replacement, things like that. Um, but king oyster mushrooms are actually rich in other nutrients which are necessary so they're really high in vitamin d and in uh, i think b2 copper things like that so um king oyster mushrooms offer offer a lot of adaptogenic benefits um just a refresher for those who maybe aren't so familiar with the concept adaptogens are um ingredients that allow the body to adapt to stress um in a more positive way so they kind of fortify the body's response to stress uh, physiologically um so we're going to back up for just a second. I know we're I'm throwing a lot at you, but I'm really excited about this trend. Um, mushrooms are up 22% generally in consumer interest since winter of 2020, um, with adaptogenic varieties actually holding kind of the lion's share, if you'll excuse the pun, um, of, uh, <laughs> of that interest. Um, so menu mentions, just to kind of give you a, a case in point moment, menu mentions of adaptogenic mushrooms in the US are actually up 236% since winter of 2020. And if you think about what was going on in winter of 2020, right, we were kind of uh, that first moment of being really deep into the pandemic, the initial, I don't want to say crisis because the crisis is ongoing, but that initial um, kind of, again, panic is not the right word, but April, May, yeah, at the beginning of, like of the, the pandemic. The first big spike, yeah. Exactly. So um, winter was when a lot of restaurants were having to make decisions about how they were going to either stay open, close, or how they were going to attract customers to, to really um, provide business. So it's interesting that the rise of adaptogenic mushrooms really aligns with that time, right? The restaurants were able to identify that trend and really move forward with it. Um, and consumer dining occasions generally involving mushrooms uh, that are adaptogenic are actually up 100% in the last two years. Um, so a lot of consumer interest in, in uh, adaptogenic. The TLDR here is mushrooms matter generally, adaptogenic mushrooms specifically matter. Um, and king oyster mushrooms within that context have a lot of nutritional benefits, which make them a great fit for replacing health conscious seafood. Um, and they're also just really texturally and uh, flavorfully delicious. So a really exciting trend to watch. Right. So um, mushrooms are the new scallops, right? That's the that's the that's tagline. The, that's the takeaway. Yeah, that's the takeaway. Amazing. You heard it here first, unless you already <laughs> read the report and then you heard it there In which first. case, you read it over there. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, are we ready for another one? I feel like I've been talking a lot. So if there's anything you want to add. Um, no, not really. I mean, I think that, um, like in all of these things, the perspective that I always like to, to think of when I say like, Hey, not really. And then I go in on a tangent. Um, but the perspective <laughs> that I, that I always like, uh, to think about is, okay, all of, all of this research is amazing. Um, it is so incredible to get so close to what consumers are actually looking for. Um, I think the, one of the most interesting public examples were on um, Pepsi's line of uh, vegan snacks off the eaten path where they wanted yeah. to identify plant-based uh, flavors 
for this uh, snack, they ended up going, uh, one of the flavors ended up uh, being seaweed, which is a process that they went through um, with TasteWise and, uh, and other tools that they did the research. And they kind of found something that was growing very rapidly, um, but was not very well penetrated um, really at all. Um, and they were able to infer from that that this is something that consumers are looking for, but they don't really know that they want. And I think that's such an interesting concept. It's not that someone wants it and they don't know that they want it. It's more they <laughs> want the effect, right? They want, for yeah. example, the stress relief that you can get from adaptogenic mushrooms. Maybe they just don't know yet the connection between adaptogenic mushrooms and stress relief, right? And then right. you as the brand are able to come and say, um, here is a product that is plant-based and aligns with your lifestyle that supports sustainability and your health goals and also is able to give you an answer for your need for um, anxiety and stress relief because of the adaptogens, um, because of the ingredients that we use, because of these mushrooms. And when you align that consumer need with the ingredient, that's where you get to this moment where you can say, yes, I gave my consumers something that they... Um, they wanted, they didn't know how to articulate exactly what they wanted. And that's when we say something like, uh, we were able to predict something that consumers didn't even know uh, how to put their finger on it, which is incredibly exciting because at the end of the day, you're, you're making their life just a little bit easier, right? By, by solving it. Yeah. And another perspective is through claims and packaging, right? Um, my, the example about myself is when I go, you know, to the grocery store uh, or when I order online. Um, uh, I'm sure in the U.S. it's a it's a bit different, but in Israel now they have these uh, kind of tags on the packaging that talk about like the sugar levels or things like that within yeah. each product. Like, and they're pretty aggressive. They will essentially say like this has a lot of sugar, you know, and it's red and black and it's like it's uh, pretty pretty intimidating. Um, but this is something that was sort of like mandated uh, on a lot of these products. And when you kind of look into it, it's just a little bit misleading because sugar isn't always bad. It really depends on what kind mm. and how much. It's like it can't really be a blanket statement. So a lot of the time these certifications, which I know that you've already spoken about quite a bit on, um, on the pod, um, yeah. can really help direct um, consumer focus into the things that they care about. So that's another kind of application of, uh, of this knowledge. You know that your consumers care about sustainability. You know that they care about stress relief. They know, you know that maybe they even already know the connection between adaptogenic uh, mushrooms and stress relief. And these are all things that you can find really easy ways to, to call out in ways that um, will focus their attention on it. Um, yeah. For sure. So, I think that's a really, a really good point. And something that I would add as well is that um, in, in this process of wanting to guide your consumers towards your product using this information that they're, they're interested in and craving, right? Um, the way to do that is by being trustworthy and data-oriented, right? Uh, we're not making the claim here of like, you know, you want your consumer to buy your products, you know, write whatever you want on the package and they'll come. That's not what we're advocating for. We're advocating for in this age of sophisticated consumers who know how to do their research, um, or mostly know how to do their research, um, be one of the leading voices in this space about whatever interesting kind of niche quality your ingredient or product has, right? Um, I think consumers are, are really open to that and are really looking to um, invest their trust and their dollars, right? 
or yeah. in your case, chuckles, um, <laughs> into products. Um, and so, you know, be a thought leader in that space. Uh, do the research, really communicate that to your consumers and they'll reward you for it. Awesome. So what's our next trend? So we have two more. These are a little bit more, um, a little bit more light. Uh, so we're going to be looking at fusion flavor profiles revolving around sweet. And we'll take a look at mochi in just a moment. So um, our first trend is uh, this fusion flavor concept. Um, and I think I mentioned this last week on the pod that there's a pretty funny uh, trademarked, not really, uh, name from our CEO, Swicy and Swalty, uh, which is a combination of <laughs> sweet and spicy and sweet and salty. I don't know if we're going to be using that moving forward, but just so you know, it's in the report. Take a look. Um, so we're looking at ways that sweet is being complemented by or combined with um, unexpected flavor profiles. So um, this constitutes everything from spicy honeys to unexpected kind of savory ice cream flavors. Um, people are getting adventurous when it comes to kind of sweet time for to desserts, things like that. Um, and we're seeing that people are increasingly combining these flavor profiles um, and experimenting with them uh, specifically around traditional pantry staples. So um, when people are, you know, ready to tuck into that late night bowl of ice cream, they're doing it with a little bit more of an eye towards adventure, towards experimentation. And um, they're looking to get kind of different flavors on their plates. Um, and this goes back to really what we were talking about. I think it was in the floral and zesty uh, example that consumers are looking for sensory sophisticated experiences. They're looking to kind of liven up their day to day. And um, food and beverage is one of those things that accompany each and every one of us on this planet, um, it, you know, in various ways uh, throughout the day. Um, and so consumers who are able to in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. are, you know, experimenting with how to bring that that new energy uh, to the plate. And one of the ways that they're doing that is by combining these kind of these flavors. So um, I think the best way to think about this is that, uh, Ron, if you're three and a half year old girls, I don't know if they're adventurous eaters or not, but if they would say, ew, that sounds gross, um, then it probably is a great trending flavor profile <laughs> within this trend. <laughs> um, so for example, or maybe they would love it. I don't know. Mac and cheese ice cream. Right. Um, that was a, an example that we saw um, a few, I think it's a few months ago now. And yeah. it's kind of one of the, the first uh, pieces of, of this puzzle. Um, so sweet and savory applications together, just like mac and cheese ice cream, um, is up 19% over the past year. Mm -hmm. um, and mac and cheese ice cream in and of itself is up 44% over the past two years. So we're seeing some major brands um, experimenting with this. And you can check them out, in, uh, at least one of them in their report. Um, and that got a lot of buzz and a lot of fanfare, right? And um, people had really strong opinions about it. Um, yeah. People either loved it or hate it. But having those kind of influencer moments um, led by this brand got people thinking, wanting to experiment. So this is a kind of a plug for, um, and this is, you know, we're seeing this across social media. If you can come up with a really wacky flavor profile that's actually pretty good um, and do the right kind of marketing campaign around it, consumers are, are more than willing to kind of jump on board, try things out, share it with their friends. Um, so this is yeah. kind of an exciting one. I think in examples where uh, the flavor profiles themselves were were not very good, where it was just, you know, okay, you colored something in a different color and like called right, it a exactly. day. Right, exactly. Um, those those situations uh, can be detrimental to to the health of the brand. Um, sure. But um, cases like these, yeah, you're sort of making a statement, um, and you're also creating a cultural moment for people to to rally around. Because I guarantee you that you have created yeah. camps for and against, you know, the mac and cheese ice cream <laughs> um, that really put that brand uh, front and center. So uh, for sure, and 
I don't know. I mean, I'll have to, I'll have to use uh, my daughters as uh, kind of like uh, the the measure. Um, uh, one of my girls, Lily, can just eat a lemon, just like she eats a lemon. Like she asks with me the to, rind. Yeah, she would just take like she would ask me to cut the lemon in half for her, and then she would just like eat the whole thing. Like she would, and like I can't do this wow and she she will not even like twitch right um so i don't know oh. about like either there's just like no flavor buds there or like <laughs> anything <laughs> yeah. <Maybe laughs> just she like just doesn't have taste buds who knows <laughs> yeah our joke which maybe is like a little dark for the pod but our joke is like yeah i'm just like biting into this lemon to like feel something no <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah, well, I mean, yeah. to put it frankly, that's why a lot of consumers are are being drawn to these exciting and experiment, you know, flavor profiles. When the world is closing down a lot, people want to kind of bring something creative and interesting and experimental. Yeah. Uh, they're they're more willing willing to take risks. I think is the takeaway here. Um, and of course, to Ron's point, that I'm not recommending to just you know go crazy and combine a bunch of things and make a new flavor. Obviously, be thoughtful and data-driven about what you're choosing to do and, and specifically for your audiences and things like that. But um, consumers' interest in taking risks around flavors is higher now. And I think that we're seeing a direct correlation between COVID era and uh, that experience. And once again, the application for this, mostly new product development and marketing, it can be the, fr- the flavor profile that you produce. Or it can be the the type of uh, recipes and marketing um, or positioning that you put together around an existing product. How to use it with totally. something that's a bit unconventional? How to do something that's uh, that's a bit out there, that's a bit unique? Uh, you see a lot of that on TikTok as well. Um, really yeah. aesthetically pleasing um, recipes that you put together. Kind of you know what we talked in the beginning of the um, of the conversation when we talked about you know like floral arrangements and uh, and garnishes. Um, along with a more like adventurous taste profile uh, that you're mixing together ingredients that you know traditionally don't go together, but you know have done the research and you know that they're good, and maybe exactly. you can even tie that back into like a consumer need, like uh, like stress relief. Um, then uh, yeah, you're or adventure. Have- Right? Yeah. Like n- not just thinking about functional health, but also like in and of itself, wanting to experiment and try something new can be a rising motivation that you should think about. Yeah. Last time we talked about um, like very regionally specific type of dishes where you're kind of like doing food tourism from your from your kitchen, right? And this can tie back into that as well. Um, I, I think very well. Yeah. So it's it's you know just like in any type of marketing all we're talking about is ways to get closer to the consumer really understand what they're after what they're looking for what drives them what motivates them to make the decisions that they're making um and then either produce um like materials for them uh like content marketing materials and recipes for them to help guide them towards that thing or make it easier for them to buy a product that also accomplishes these goals yeah Amazing. I think that's really well said. Um, so just to wrap us up with with this particular trend, I'll tell you about a few other flavor combinations that are trending. So uh, sweet and salty is rising 29% over the past few years. That's probably the most um, one of the most familiar of this group. Um, or maybe not. I think these are all to some extent familiar, but the ways that people are, are using them are, are different. So sweet and salty is up almost 30% over the last two years. Um, a trending example that we found was camembert and tomato jam, um, which kind of brings together the saltiness of the cheese with the sweetness of almost like a savory 
jam that's still a little bit sweet. And that is up um, 19% just in the last month. Um, so that's an example of a trending recipe. Uh, taps into also the kind of charcuterie board, the grazing box, all that good stuff that we've talked about in the past about um, kind of elevating an experience. And um, we're also seeing that sweet and spicy is up 34% over the past two years. So uh, kind of the classic example, at least these days, is hot honey. I have some in my pantry right now. And um, that's up 31% over the last year um, and has a lot of applications in savory dishes, but also seeing some as a drizzle for ice cream and home cooking recipes, things like that. Um, so, you know, sweet and spicy uh, can take on lots of different meanings. Um, and finally, sweet and sour is up 38% uh, over the past two years. Um, we're seeing that a, a trending example of that is a Pisco sour cocktail, um, which combines sweet and sour elements. And that's up, I believe, 33% over the past two years. So um, lots of interesting kind of food for thought here. Lots of examples. You can check those out again in the report. Um, also feel free to use Spotlight and you can kind of uh, taste my Spotlight, which Ron mentioned at the top of the pod, and you can kind of get a sense of these for yourself. But um, lots of really kind of exciting, unexpected things going on in this space. And I think uh, we'll see a lot more of that in 2022. That's amazing. Great. Okay. So um, last but not least, we've got mochi. Um, mochi is uh, a sweet Japanese rice-based rice treat for those of you who have had it before. Um, my local grocery store actually now has a mochi bar. Um, it's oftentimes uh, kind of the wrapper for ice cream. So we have uh, kind of like a freezer section that has a bunch of these and you can kind of pick and choose. So that was one of my introductions to mochi. But um, it is beloved in Japanese cuisine, and it's kind of finding its way into more into more mainstream. Um, it's up forty one percent over the past two years in consumer interest, and forty seven percent in menu mentions. So, um, definitely seeing an upward tilt there. Um, we're also seeing that baked items involving mochi um, are up 79% over the past two years. So a little bit different than uh, the ice cream example that I just gave. So baked items, um, we've got a couple different rising examples. So things like um, mochi croissants, which are up around 173% over the past year alone. Um, mochi churros, which are up 160% in the last year. Mochi donuts, all of these look amazing and sound amazing, um, are up 20, I think 21% over the past year. And mochi waffles, are, which are up around 23%. So um, lots of really sweet, delicious, kind of um, classic American pastries um, that are taking on this kind of uh, mochi-oriented twist, which is really cool. Um, and a training opportunity that we've identified, which I think is, is pretty niche, but if this is relevant for you and your work, I think this is a really interesting direction to, to take it. Um, so mochi baked goods that are low in sugar, um, we can expect to, to see a lot of consumer interest. Low sugar is up um, around 24% over the past two years, um, and especially within baked goods. So if you can find a way to create these kind of really indulgent dishes featuring mochi, but also find a way to kind of cut down the sugar content a little bit, um, you could find a really kind of eager audience for that. So um, I think this is a short and sweet one. Again, pardon the pun, um, but <laughs> I do think that it is a, it is an interesting one, especially for those of you who are working in the baked goods space. Miriam, we will never pardon the pun. Uh, <laughs> I think um, pun pardoning. I, I think um, it's it's really interesting to see the kind of reimagining of traditionally uh, American foods through the lenses of other cultures. Um, like we're seeing here with uh, with mochi, like you said, taking yeah. um, not just American foods, but kind of like the traditional pastries or traditional like baked goods and uh, reimagining them uh, through the lens of a different culture uh, with, uh, with mochi in, in this example. Um, so I think that is something that we're seeing more and more of. Um, we talked about that a little bit on, uh, on our previous episode. 
Um, yeah, but just something that you can, you can, I think, not necessarily like very easily, but definitely something that you can use to introduce existing audiences to new flavors. Um, I know we always bring up this mm. example, but I just think it's it's so smart and so good. But the example from uh, uh, Freshly on the very first episode of uh, the podcast, yeah. where she talked about um, if you're going to introduce a new type of uh, ingredient to an audience that is not familiar with it, you can only innovate either on the ingredient or on the format, but not on both, right? And the example that she used was um, za'atar, which is uh, like a Mediterranean kind of spice. Um, and uh, and so she said, I would uh, give it to like a Midwestern um, American audience on a bagel, on like something that they're familiar with, right? You can only innovate on one. Um, so I think yeah. this is exactly one of these situations, again, where if you're taking a very well-known kind of traditional, um, either like baked good or dessert or whatever whatever it might right. be, and you're innovating on it with mochi, um, so you've innovated on an ingredient while you kept the format something familiar, uh, which is a really smart way to do it. I think that's a, yeah, that's a really, really great point um, in terms of innovation. I, al I also want to comment on um, your point earlier about kind of global cuisine showing up much more frequently. And this was something, again, like you said, we talked about in the kitchen travel section of last week's episode. Um, but I think one of the things that's really exciting about the American food and beverage experience is that so many different cultures are coming to bear and things that we now take a little bit for granted, right? Um, when we think about, let's use that example of mochi churros, right? Churros are kind of a uh, fried dough dessert for those of you who aren't familiar. Um, they are often showing up in Spanish and Portuguese, Latin American, and I believe Filipino culture. Um, and how incredible is it that uh, that's become such a part and parcel of the kind of texture and fabric of the American experience that we're seeing that now being combined with this Japanese rice-based ingredient, right? Um, and talking about it here on the podcast as a trend to watch. So I think um, it's it's cool to think about how to, to bring together all of these different authentic uh, kind of ingredients and cultural experiences and, and make something that um, speaks to the lots of different identities that we have in our country, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Definitely. So we hope uh, this has been really useful for you. Um, the way I kind of envision our audience is when you're going through your morning routine or if you are in the office when you're driving into the office, just like listening to the new trends um, and uh, and kind of uh, kicking back and relaxing with us. That, it, that's how I envision it because that's how I or listen to a podcast. <laughs> in today's world, if you are not driving into the office and you are yeah. doing the dishes and the laundry and your kids' meals and whatever all at the same time while trying to work. This is the yeah. podcast for you. <laughs> I have finished so many audiobooks and podcasts. Um, like the, Do you have a favorite? What, podcast? Uh, yeah. Or, um, the Food Intelligence think, Podcast? Is that your favorite? <laughs> the Food Intelligence Podcast, definitely definitely my favorite. But uh, no, the, the one that I put on just when I want to like disconnect for a little bit is uh, Dear Hank and John. Um it's uh, author Hank Green and his brother. Green, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so John Green and, uh, yeah. So John and Hank Green, they just kind of like really answer really ridiculous questions and kind of have a good time uh, with millions of people listening. So yeah, um, it's a good time. Awesome. But back to the Food Intelligence Podcast. Um, again, <laughs> we really hope it's been useful for you. Um, the I believe the next episode... Uh, we'll start talking about the predictions for the UK trends. 
Um, yeah. Next month, we're going to be focusing uh, mostly on food service sales. So we're going to be exploring the worlds of um, comparing different regions within the U.S. and other places in the world when it comes to uh, menu penetrations and what's been performing well um, and uh, really how can brands work with uh, food service in order to either get more traction within menus or how we can use that to measure the success of your brand. I think it's going to be really interesting. We have a lot of really great things lined up. I just want to mention again that um, if there's anything that you'd like to see covered on either these or the weekly live show that we do on our website, TasteWise Live, which is essentially just a half-hour research session about uh, a trend of your choice, just send us a note at live at tastewise.io. And you can also check out the free edition of TasteWise on our website, TasteWise Starter. Um, if you want to follow along and kind of research some of these trends uh, yourself, really the the goal with this is to um, make your day to day a little bit easier. I also want to announce um, a little video series that I'm going to start doing um, over very casual and informal, but over the next couple of weeks, we get a lot of questions about the trends that we talked about, a lot of interest and engagement. Um, so if you have a specific question about anything that we've covered here or anything on a webinar or a live or anything like that, shoot us a note um, at live at tasterize.io and I'll uh, record like a, an answer to that based on the, the research that I do um, every day, all day. So uh, shoot us a note, live at tasterize.io. We'll make you a little personalized video um, and it should be helpful for you, I hope. All right, I think those are all of our announcements. Okay, so <laughs> thanks. <laughs> thanks everybody for listening. The Food Intelligence Podcast is edited by Daniel Gall. It's produced by Ophir Nagar. Uh, all of the amazing uh, content that uh, we're going through and all of the analysis and research is all done by Miriam, who's right here with me. Um, and um, I'm uh, also here just to kind of introduce and, uh, <laughs> and make dad jokes and talk about my daughters. Uh, that's kind of like my job description. We, <laughs> we hope uh, you have a good rest of your week. See you on the next one. Bye. See ya.